Hi, this is William Ramsey. The next hour is part three of a three-hour interview I recorded with attorney Paul Morantz, author of Escape, My Lifelong War Against Colts. You can listen to the entirety of the three-hour interview at my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates. Enjoy the show. Uh, that was 1984. Soon on filed appeals and went through the appellate court system, but never got anywhere. And finally, uh, the next lawsuit is for how much do they owe? And the judge hears that decision. He's he's adding up what is the value of the squares living there and working for free? What is the value of this? And he's coming up with all these calculations and theories to total $55 million. I thought reading it, it, what the judge was really saying was uh, one plus one equals you don't exist anymore. Gotcha. <laughs> that was both the mathematics that right. he was using, you know. Right. And, uh, and so I sent it on and feel that and lost. And in 1991, 13 years after the rattlesnake, the doors of Senate on closed. Wow. That was it. But that wasn't the last time you had heard or you uh, heard or seen Dieterich, right? Because you met him face-to-face, correct? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, it's actually in both my books. But Uh um, it was um, – there was this rancher in Visalia, uh, November of 1977. I remember when it happened because I I got involved in June of 77. So when this story trickled down to me, it was really scary. Um, Ron Eitzen was a 50-year-old something sort of redneck type, you know, cowboy living in Visalia, driving a truck, you know, to work and everything. And he had his three kids and his wife lived up in the Badger Mountains. He almost gets in a road accident with some Synodon people, and some words are exchanged. And he goes on a fishing trip while Synodon is taking witnesses in the car and driving onto people's farms looking for who this guy is. There are several encounters where, where guns were pointed at each other, and Dave Gilmore was bragging his mouth around to help us find this guy. We're going to beat him up, and if you ever have anyone bothering us and you want us want to beat up, let us know. You know, talk that was going on, and uh, finally, they somebody sees Eitzen's wife and recognizes her, and there's a big chase scene, and she makes it back to her place and calls the sheriff. And when Eitzen comes back, he calls and gets uh, Doug Robson on the phone and says. You know what's going on, and and uh, he said we have a lot of people in here angry and mad. And I says uh, I'll call you back. And he calls him back, and it was tape recorded. And in the tape recording, Robson says um, that um, that you know we'll forget it if you apologize. And he says I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to apologize. And he says, well, I warned you. I'm not going to argue with you. That was your warning. You know. And at 12 midnight that night, they came to the ranch, and they held his family at gunpoint. His son, Jeffrey, I think, was 15. His oldest son took away his rifle, and and Eisen finally surrendered his because they had guns pointing at his family. 
And then they ordered the family back in the house, and then about four of them with rifle butts began stomping on ice, on ice and said, we're going to kill you. Somebody says, you know, the cops may have figured it. Then his wife called the, called the sheriff. They said, you know, we probably should get out of here. And he lived. He's in the hospital for a long time. And he actually shared with the Dinuba punks. It was around the same Oh, it's not over punks, but he shared it with, with two kids who I think uh, they beat up at a fire station in the hospital. So, so now it's um, 1981 is when you, yeah, 80 or 81, sorry. Yeah, it was 19, 1980. Um, I had some contacts, a lawyer named Ed Martin in Los Angeles says he can't get a, a lawyer to take his case. And Martin calls me. It was actually Martin's idea. Um, but this, be- this than- became kind of a recurring uh, event for you where if people had problems with cults or some type of experience, they would either through the grapevine or just through research end up calling this you. Is that correct? Pro- pro- probably for me, this was more a situation like, you're in a war, and you don't leave your buddies behind. Gotcha. You know, they had beaten up Edson. You know, uh-huh. they had, uh, he, this man had never gotten justice. It was like a hanging thread. Right. It was also necessary for me to say, this and on, you didn't chase me away. Gotcha. I guess my point, so, my point is, Paul, is I was just saying that from other cults, too, people would call you for advice or legal services as well. Isn't that true? Yes, just in yes. Gotcha. yes. In fact, the Center for Healing Therapy had sort of popped up around 1980, and I sort of put someone else on the case just to, to finish Edson. But the point that I want to tell you is that the statute of limitations back then was one year. This has happened in November of 77, and now we're in 1980. And so when on when we served them with the lawsuit, I used to fly up a six-seater air, airplane to us, tell you, take air sickness pills. The one is that what we argued is that the exception to the statute of limitations is if you do something to prevent the person from being able to file the suit. So what we claimed was is that that on by doing the new religious posture and all the attacks it did, and all its lawsuits and terrorizing Visalia, that every every attorney in Visalia was too afraid to take his case. And particularly when they tried to kill me, there wasn't any way of lawyers to take his case. So I said, that's why he didn't file within the statute. He'd been trying all along. And now I'm here from Los Angeles to finally see he gets justice. You know, I think. You know, whether or not we were so right on the law, but the judge ruled in our favor. I personally think he was just so happy to see me. I believe it. And that's what led to your deposition. Taking of these, Peter. These, yeah. yes. yes. So it was in that case in Visalia that I flew up to take his deposition. Now, in the ABC litigation, Dietrich had already blurred out about Edson saying, that, well, some bunk, country bumpkin had, uh, you know, messed with our people on the road, so, 
you know, he had to be taught a lesson that our roads will be safe. You know, a gun butt on the back of the head in front of his family is a good way of doing that. So I figured this wasn't going to be a difficult case to try anymore. <laughs> you know, he already opened his mouth. And it was um, it was sort of um, a curiosity thing. I wanted to understand why this happened. Right. I really spent most of the time questioning him about his past and his decision-making and, um, you know, to sort of get answers to questions that I wanted. Right, and that's the it guy pretty, who 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 ordered the snake attack upon you that almost killed you. Yes, yes. As I said in my book, uh, you know, I was dedicated to Diedrich because they had priced a hitman at ten thousand dollars, and he said, "Why spend the money? We have the Imperial Marines; we can do it ourselves." And with that decision, he saved my life. Fascinating. Did you have any uh, lingering after effects from the snake bite? Did that affect your arm or anything? Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Did, uh, well, so that was your time pretty much with Sinanon. That pretty much ended it. Your contact and litigation with Sinanon was that final Edson case there from Vesalia. Is that correct? Well, I also had a case, uh, Dan Ross, who was a member who who gave a lot of money to them, and they threw him out. And um, He wanted his I, money back? Yeah, he gave 25000 to take care of his mother-in-law, and then they threw him out, and he didn't allow him to see his mother-in-law. And Diedrich was asked by Connie Chung, you know, that, you know, why would he do that? And he admitted it. He said, well, the media holds us back. He spoke to the media. Wow. Uh, and, and so, like, that, too, was a pretty easy open. So they also threw him out of the game because he wouldn't donate his last money, and they picked him up by the ear, and that game was tape recorded, so we, we had the tape of that. You, so uh, these were you thanked Connie, Connie Chung in the acknowledgments. Was that just because, just for her reporting, or did you have uh, kind of a personal, you know, did you stay in contact with her? I, I felt at the time that we had sort of a, a personal friendship and the big reporters were Connie Chung, Nardis Aquino, and Dave Mitchell, who were making Sinan on their, you know, the thing. You know, Connie went up there and interviewed you. And I would call Connie and I'd say, you know, Chuck Diedrich has a crush on you. And I would tell her things that they were doing preparing for her. And, of course, I think I kind of liked that I could be at a party somewhere and I'd say, watch this. And I'd, you know, take a phone and dial, you know, CBS, and I'd say, newsroom, please. And I said, Connie Chung is Paul Morantz. And next thing, you know, I'd be, you know, putting the phone across the room. Connie's on, you know, on the phone saying hello. And, you know, when I came back from the hospital, she came out of the front door of my house. Oh, now, I would say that I find a loss in some ways that, that Connie... And I have never spoken again since sort of the Sinan story ended. But that is something that you probably know as a journalist and that I know as a journalist. You do a story and you get very close with the people. And you think that they're going to be sort of part of your life forever. But then the story ends. A new story comes. You know, you may move to a new city, whatever. And and lawyers do the same thing too. I go through a case and I almost like adopt my clients as as my children. And then one day, 
they're all gone, and you never see or hear from them again. So it's just the fact of life. But uh, I miss Connie's town. So that pretty much ends your kind of Sinanon adventure, but you had other contacts with kind of some of these other cult events, particularly Charles Manson, Jim Jones. Can you talk about your connection to the Charles Manson family? I was, um, in 1988, I was married, and, and I purchased a couple of books at the Roseville Swap Meet on Manson, written by former members, one of them by Tex Watson. And as I came home that night, my wife went to sleep and I was reading it in bed. I threw it up and hit the ceiling and started shouting. And uh, she said, she wakes up, what's, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I go, he was my friend, he was my friend. I never had known it uh, for all that time. You know, because we never called him Tex Watson and Watson was a common name. You know, I just knew him as Charles Watson. Gotcha. And we worked side by side when I was 22 years old, a summer job before I went to law school, selling women's hair pieces. And so I'm reading it, and he says, I arrived, you know, in the summer of 68 in Los Angeles, and I got a job at Cadessa Creations on La Cienica. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was there in 1968 at Creations. And my mind started racing. There was only four of us there. Right. You know. And so it was it was a pretty startling thing. But he had stayed in that business. Was didn't he start like a hair business from the knowledge the uh, He tried he, he tried to start one I did too, matter of fact, when I went to USC I had an uncle who was uh, wholesaling hair pieces. They were popular, you know, in the 60s. Right. And so I would uh, let Ward know at sorting houses and stuff that I could, you know, get stuff, you know, but at cheaper when, prices. When you met Tex Watson, there was no indication of the future violence. Is that correct? I, he was, first of all, he was Charles, not Tex. And he was Sorry. very straight and... Um, wore generally a suit when the rest of us were casual. He'd taken to some parties. A lot of the girls would invite us to parties. And, because um, we were basically selling, you know, women. And uh, he would be very quiet. Interesting. You know, it was like trying to, you know, wake him up. Hey, you're in Los Angeles now. You know, have fun. He hadn't yeah. adapted. He was still kind of the Texas guy. And uh, you also have a connection to Jim Jones. You had uh, referenced early that two of the uh, people who came to the hospital as journalists ended up at Jonestown. Can you talk about that and also your relationship to uh, Mr. Stone? Uh, yeah. Please? Yeah. You know, Tim Stone is the real story, you know, at Jonestown. And you know, it's funny, you know, because anniversary, we're seeing you know, movies and CNN specials and everything. You may want to ask me why there's not ever been a documentary on Synanon. I have a very surprising story to tell you. Okay. But the um, uh, Stone, you know, you know, was a um, very liberal, you know, 60s type guy that, you know, based upon that liberalism and the counter, you know, the revolution of the 60s, was attracted to Jim Jones, you know, wanting to help the poor and uh, and becomes Jim Jones's lawyer. But slowly as he learns things and learns things and learns things, 
he leaves and then tries to warn people. And but he was meanwhile, a, how did you know him? Well, Tim heard about me, and uh, he called. And in talking to him, it was like Sinon and Jonestown were the reverse sides of a mirror. You know, it was um, they were the same thing and doing the same things by the same methods. And, and so we were, you know, in a lot of dialogue about that and also, you know, started sharing, you know, strategy ideas. And when I was in the hospital with the rattlesnake, um, Stone left a message that he would fly to L.A. to, you know, help with my office while I was recovering, which was, I thought, pretty nice of him. If I had full use of both my arms, I might have gone to Jonestown. Although I like to think if I'd been there, it wouldn't have happened. You know, they were smart enough See, Stone had a custody order for his child that, just like Sinanon, Jones made kids his property. So he couldn't get his kid out. And because he had an order for custody is one of the reasons, and maybe the reason, that Jim Jones went to Guyana so that uh, if he couldn't enforce the order. Gotcha. You know, it wouldn't have the United States, you know, order, and they, he was unsuccessful to get the Guyana government to do anything. So he came down on the plane with the senator, and um, but he stayed at the airport smart enough to know that that, that in itself could trigger if Jones knew he was there. But on the other hand, if he if he had been there, it might not have happened. Just as I think that if I had been there, it might not have happened because um, Ryan made some mistakes. What, what do you think somebody, his mistakes were? What do you think his mistakes were? Well, one was um, bringing the media in there at all. You know, unfortunately, politicians, you know, want the media to, you know, broadcast and publicize what they're doing so they to push for their political careers. You know, interesting, a lot of people don't know, but Ryan was pushing a petition to pardon Patty Hearst at the time. And he probably succeeded in getting that done by his own death. But the, um, uh, the media, I would have said, even all the media at the airport, if you, that these guys believe that there's a great man in history, Diedrich went crazy over Time Magazine when, uh, when they did the story on changing partners. He expected to be man of the year, Time Man of the Year. He had people working to uh, nominate him for a, um, a Nobel uh, Nobel Prize. Um, the reason he tape recorded, the reason Jim Jones tape recorded, the reason Richard Nixon tape recorded, is that they all wanted to preserve it for history because they were the great men. So once you bring the media in there, you're saying to him, you know, you're going to be unveiled. We're here to, you know, for to let the world know. And so that was the first mistake. The second mistake is that when people asked to leave when they were leaving, 
is they went to Jones and told him. That was the second mistake. The What you would want to do is just tell the people, leave, walk out, you know, just go for a walk somewhere, go in advance, we'll meet you at the airport or something like that. But once you tell them that people are going to leave, and they're going to leave with the media. They know what the stories are going to be from those people. Right. And that the jig is up. Right. And that's you know? what made and Jones so, panic, yeah. Yeah, that's what made Jones panic. And I knew enough at that time. I mean, the one that I really could have stopped was Waco. I mean, I was pretty angry when Waco happened because up until that point, if anything happened... The media contacted me, you know, government contacted me. My opinion was always asked. And Waco was the point where I sort of realized I was sort of forgotten. The new generation of media, you know, new sets of politicians. But God, I could, it's like if there was anything I could have ever saved, I could have stopped Waco. Uh, yeah, that's too bad. I mean, it's almost like the same kind of same type of dynamic. People show up, people panic, then, you know, it goes goes wrong. You, I mean... Well, you, you, if, you surround, if you surround, just like, you know, with Jonestown, you know, once the jig was up, he took, went down and took everyone with him. Right. And, you know, that's what Hitler did. That's right. what, um, you know, Applegate does later. You know, it's Grash, all yeah. history. Yeah, yeah so, so with Grash, it was like, hey, you surround them? That's what's going to happen, you know. That's what the SLA did, Los Angeles. They wouldn't come out either. They burned. That's a good point. What? Uh, and then this yeah. poor guy Stone, his son ended up being a victim in Jonestown, correct? And you worked with uh, yeah, some it, of the representatives, some of the Jonestown yeah. families, right? Yeah, his son, his son died. Yes, and then afterwards, I represented um, um, uh, uh, the. Um, a few of the families in the bank. Wasn't there a bankruptcy yeah. hearing or something? There was a bankruptcy proceeding. I represented um, the father of one of the photographers who was killed at the airport, and I represented uh, relatives of many of the people who who died. And uh, you ran into Melvin Bella. He was a famous San Francisco yeah, king of torts. Yeah. That was quite. That was quite an experience because I got to tell you, I've heard legends about this man. And I was actually going to see him in person. And on the first day we were there, he gets up and he and he says, "I represent people shot, you know, at the airport, and they should get all the money because no one gets gets money for committing suicide." And he says, "If I can't prove that Jonestown killed these people, I'll surrender my bar card." And he put his bar card on the table. I was, you know, and I was next up, you know. Right. So I walked up following, you know, the great Melvin Belli. You know, this is a guy who, who once convinced a, uh, a jury that um, a woman in a bus case that her she became her damages were she became a nymphomaniac for the bus accident. That's right, I remember. Yeah. Well, he used to have. Said, yeah, he used to have a pirate so, flag he would raise after a big ju- uh, settlement. He would raise it. His offices, he had offices. But, yeah, right. yeah so, you know, he, he was, at that time, I mean, Tom Girardi, I think, has surpassed him. And, but but at that time, he probably made more money than anybody in history in personal injury. So I was, uh, I came up after him, and I said, well, 
as far as the suicides, if I can't convince that Jim Jones didn't brainwash these people into suicide, he can have my bar card, and I put my bar card on the table underneath uh, Malvin Belli's. Cool. The interesting thing was that uh, afterwards, you know, I went out, you know, had some drinks with him and stuff, and got to talk to him, and I thought, you know, this was just, you know, so great that, you know, I would, you know, get to do this. But I was sort of surprised that he was more interested in, in meeting me. Interesting. That's that's cool. And, and I think that I I was something so different because most lawyers, it's all about you know how much money you can make and what your jury verdict was. And I wasn't someone. Mine was how many people I could put in jail and how many licenses I could revoke. And so I was sort of a different, you know, breed. Different breed of lawyer, yeah. And that kind of brainwashing theme that you talked about in front of Melvin Belli was a common theme in a lot of your cases, was proving coercion or undue yeah, influence, correct? Yeah, yeah. and, and, and the, I should say that the big thing was that uh, Dr. Robert J. Lifton wrote this book, The Psychology of Totalism, from studying the prisoner of war in Korea, and I read it. He's a brilliant man, and he's also a writer in a far greater sense of language than I do. A lot of people, he was hard to understand, but I understood it. I understood what he was saying, and that totalism, brainwashing, he, he explained, presented one of the great dangers to mankind. You know, that he even said it creates holy wars. And, uh, of course, they're not called their thing, the holy war. And, of course, you know, today we deal with ISIS and everything. And it was, if you read his book and everything, or you read my book, you sort of understand it. Well, you uh, definitely cover the... Sec yeah. second Second book with Ted Patrick's uh, Let Our Children Go, the kidnapper programmer, and that told me the story of what was going on in the United States currently in, in, in the 70s. And when I read Patrick's book, while I did not necessarily agree with his methods, I remember it just saying, I'm in, you know. I'm in for the long haul. Well, I mean, your book, Escape, My Lifelong War Against Cults, definitely proves that. Uh, we, you also cover so many other uh, elements of totalism of, of these these groups, such as the Rajneesh, Moonies. Uh, you talk about L. Ron Hubbard and, you know, some other uh, groups. You, that, left out, you left out Warner Earhart. And Est, right. That's correct. So yes. you definitely cover I thought he was... I thought he was the worst and the most dangerous and had the most uh, long-lasting effects on society. Why do you say that? Well, you had the 60s, which was basically, you know, we're going to make the world right, we're going to undo, you know, uh, racism, we're going to give women's rights, gay rights, we're going to end the Vietnam War, you know, it's, uh, it's peace, love, you know. Uh, generation and uh, Earhart comes along with a self-help group that he's a great salesman and promotion and that uses the sort of what I call a version of the Synod trip to break people down, attack them like you heard on that tape, you know, you're an asshole, you're, you're this and that and you're yes. and, and you're torn apart and to be, and just like in Synod, to be kept up 
uh, very late so that you dissipate, you know, you lose your 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 ego, so to speak. And, um, and of course, if you pay $350, you're halfway there before you, you go in because you want your money's worth. You want you don't want to say, I didn't get it. Right. And, uh, and while Scientology or Synanon or Roshnish or Jonestown have a campsite, you know, and people, it's limited in number, Earhart sought to exercise the world. And in all the others, I never really cared about uh, their philosophy, so to speak. It was a question of brainwashing and control. But in Est, its philosophy was anti-Golden Rule, in my opinion. Take from others and take from them first. Right. You know, it was it was all right to be selfish. It was oh, you're the controller of your universe, and and if you uh, stole from somebody, it was their fault that they let you steal from them. And it was all right to do whatever makes you happy to get past the mind. There's no right, there's no wrong. And he actually went as far as people that want to right wrongs are just wasting time. Well, I took that kind of personally, you know. And um, uh, But I saw the world change at that point. You know, uh, S was was highly popular, and it was having an effect on, you know, finally by the 70s, or, you know, we changed from hippies to yuppies, and into 80s, greed is good. You know, and to me, it all sort of stems back to the, to starts with, uh, with S. Interesting. But somewhat was. You know, greed's okay. You know, take, get what you want, and it does, nothing really matters. Now, it was the perfect um, thing for Earhart because here's a guy who abandons his wife and four kids at the age of 24 and hops on a plane with another woman, changes his name to Warner Earhart, and a stolen car makes his way out west, and only reunites with his original family when he's become so famous, becoming so famous that he knows he's going to be spotted and recognized that they'll find him. So he has to go back and then say, well, you, you can all be rich, you know, come out to Los Angeles, you know. Um, How long did he last he, for? Did he, is he still in, didn't he rebrand and become something? S became Landmark Foundation or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, after he split to Europe, after the 60-minute show and the allegations were made, he was brainwashing uh, abused his son and one sister, although I thought it's rather skimpy evidence, um, accused him of sex with one of her, one of her sisters. But um, uh, I don't think it's I don't, I don't think it's functioning as it as it once did back then. I mean, it was definitely. I remember. Well, I think I, I think there was a bigger discovery out of the success of Landmark, and that was is that um, and followed by another guy, uh, Ed Sieg, uh a guy who broke away from us and involved his own group, and I of course ended up suing that one too because he was having sex with all the women. And I alleged that it was a form of psychotherapy, so therefore he can't do that. Uh, but 
when you went from S to Landmark, what is sort of sad is that, and you sort of see it now, even so more apparent, is that you really don't need the brainwash. You know, you don't really need to do that attack therapy that Sinan did, that S did, and the Roshnish did. Uh, it's like, just get up there and say nonsense gotcha. and emotional things. You know, and people will cheer, and there'll be a group attachment. You don't have to do all this stuff. I, and I, I think Landmark was sort of one of the first times that you sort of saw that. Yeah, know? and I remember you wrote in your book that there's a pool of people looking for that kind of yeah. uh, self-actualization. So these guys can just get a different group of people every time with you know, every generation or different area. Right. So I thought that was an interesting well, they all, observation. They all, they all move on. Now, you know, now you understand that, um, that, uh, Earhart, uh, the mayor of, uh, Parlier took the S training and felt that he got it. And he went to Earhart and said that our community, North of Fresno is having problems. Could you possibly help? And he agreed to train the entire community for nothing. And um, Father Lopez was a uh, sort of leader of the underground, not sort of liking it, because apparently, to make an example, one of them kicked the Bible, and this was a very, you know, uh, Christian community, farm workers, and um, they called Margaret Singer, who was an expert on brainwashing cults in San Francisco, and she called me and said, Paul, will you hop a plane to Parlier? And so I went, this was in June, I think around June 78, and uh, it was pretty horrible because it was, to me, it was like I could imagine this is what happened in Nazi Germany. They had graduates spread out in the crowd to clap and cheer at the right moments and try to whip everyone else into clapping and cheering. But the people, if they picked Malibu or Beverly Hills or somebody like that where they're, you know, into the more head trips, it might have been successful. But this was a poor farming community, and uh, they weren't having. They weren't having they, it. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of them spoke Spanish, and they weren't having it. And uh, and as the trainer was realizing that the crowd was getting more and more hostile, he said, "Do you understand that we have a contract to do the entire Los Angeles Police Department?" And when I heard that. You know, I realized what my job is done here. It's time to go back to LA. Right. And Gate, Gates was the uh, Gates was the the head of the LA yeah. at the time, right? Yeah. My yeah, my old buddy Daryl Gates. Yeah, you know, it's nice. funny, but after this was all over, there was a time I was with a date at a restaurant, and they were kicking us out, and folks, they were going to do a comic roast, and I asked somebody, well, who's subject and they said Daryl Gates and I quickly turned to this guy I said are you one of the comedians who's going to be roasting him he said yeah and I said I'll give you one right now he said okay and I said uh, what does uh, Narrow and Police Chief Gates have in common what's that they both fiddled while their cities burned that's right that's perfect well said yeah so, I only wish I could have hung around to see his see, face 
And well, I, I told them when it's all over, tell them that, that Paul Morant's, you know. <laughs> well, didn't you didn't you at one point get recognition from one of the city attorneys for your work in the Sinanon case? I remember reading that in your book. It was, uh, they gave you a standing ovation. What was that at? Um, uh, Mike, um, um, who was uh, the one attorneys representing got uh, was retiring oh, and um, I was invited and um, and Vandy Camp was sort of the MC of it and you know Vandy Camp went on to be Attorney General President right. of the State Bar and he you know, ran for governor but he didn't win and um, and uh, he said that uh, he started recounting Mike Carroll's career and it's, you know, and to say probably the biggest case was the prosecution uh, sitting on Chuck Dudrick. And, uh, and he says, and Paul Morantz is here with us today. And uh, at that point, I got a standing ovation. And I really was surprised. I just really was. I remember later the current attorney general came over to meet me and shake my hand. And then when Mike finally spoke, he said the thing that he'll remember most about the office was the courage of Paul Moran. Wow, that's amazing. How many years later after Synanon, the Synanon case? It was 2000. It was oh, 2000. Okay. So nine years after they were gone, it was, I guess, uh, 22 years after the state. You know, in 2013, Santa Monica gave me a, a plaque. Cool. Uh, but I never received much from... Los Angeles, or not sure anything about four times a movie was almost made twice green lighted, but for very very different reasons. Well, you were going to say made. why hasn't a documentary been made about the, right. uh, why not? I've been approached. I've been approached six seven times for documentaries. Of course, now the guy who's making it is actually from England, but the um, uh, here's. The thing, 1972, the San Francisco Chronicle was a story on Synanon calling it the racket of the century. Pretty accurate story. The idea of it was it wasn't any drug rehab and it was all going into hot tubs and, and uh, lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And um, Synanon, at that point actually formed their legal department and Dan Garrett and Garfield I think, as a result and a reaction to that Diedrich named Toilets. Uh, excuse me, I said the Chronicle of San Francisco Examiner. Examiner, back in the day. And he, yeah, he, he called the, the uh, Toilets Examiners. And um, we used to call the Chronicle, sued, the Chronicle the Comical. Yeah, well, they sued you know, William Randolph Hearst, who soon has his own problems with, you know, Patty running around with the SLA. Right. But the real problem of the case was is that the guy who wrote it had been fired by William Randolph Sr. for fabricating a story inside China that he wrote from um, Hong Kong bar. And uh, later he had spent time in prison on fraud and... Uh, Somehow, William Randolph Jr. hires him back, and it turns out he's only got one source, and this is really 
not a good situation for the examiner. To make things worse, the uh, examiner lawyers apparently hire some um, ex-Synon people to verbalize Synon and steal some tapes, and they get caught and prosecuted and found guilty. And so at this point, um, there's a settlement for uh, $600,000, which Synon claimed at that time I think in 76, when they said there was the highest libel settlement in the United States that was put in the Guinness Book of Records. I remember that the next year when I came into it, and I called lawyers for examiner. They wouldn't even speak to me. But they said, good luck. Wow. That's, you know, they wished me good luck, but they wouldn't even speak to me. When the rattlesnake happened, the examiner wouldn't even print stories. They were so afraid. Yeah. They were so afraid. So they put a wire story uh, on it, and then when Sinan sent them a letter, they wrote a retraction. And um, now, January of 1978, Sinan makes purchases $65,000 worth of weapons from Martell Gun Shop in San Francisco. KGO, which is an ABC affiliate, goes on the air to make the announcement. They look for something on the backdrop to uh, to uh, for the story, and they find a picture of a man holding a rifle. So they put that the Cinnon logo on top of that, and that's the backdrop. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Today, Cinnon, the drug rehab, has purchased sixty-five thousand weapons from a San Francisco gun shop. The problem was, is that the man in the photo was Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, my gosh. So they used his picture <laughs> from the GFK assassination? Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah, so, yeah, so Synanon sues, and they buy stock in ABC, and they send members in ABC's shareholder meeting and ask them what protection does their, does their wives have and names them by name. And... Um, uh, a hush went over the room, and the heads of ABC told their lawyers, go get them. Well, Chris Brown, Chris is, I mean, Chris Brown, real name, and Bob Fredlin, like Lawler and Hertz, which is two great lawyers, and they worked super hard. They were the ones who came up with the memos, uh, Garfield wrote a letter to Doug Robeson saying these memos on our violent encounters could be used against us. Gather them all up throughout the foundation and bring them to the legal department and we'll claim attorney-client privilege and no one will ever get them. And Robeson writes, uh, it's been done. So Synanon thought they had cleaned their records. When Synanon wasn't making responses to the discovery, the ABC lawyers or get collecting sanctions and moving. And finally, Sinan said, hey, you can have everything. We have a warehouse that has copies of everything. Here's the key. Go have a ball. And uh, they thought it was plain, but they hired people who went in there, and they microfilmed everything, and then they had people hired at night to watch it, and all of a sudden a memo would come up, and they'd say, take them down the basement, and give them a lesson in manners, you know. Right. Another one would say, you know, prepare to go out and do missions that you might die. 
you know, it was, um, uh, so they had everything, and that helped, you know, it, it was like. But Sinanon had thought they had scrubbed it. They hired somebody, yeah. but they didn't do it. Yeah, they thought they job. scrubbed it. Yeah. And in fact, that's the old thing. He used to say that his problem was he had dope fiend labor, and they only had four fingers. <laughs> you know, they couldn't do anything right. And, you know, he turned out to be, you know. Correct, right? He turned out correct. To be correct. Yeah. He thought he was good. So, so ABC is sort of the unsung hero at this time. And uh, now... Dietrich and everyone's put guilty. One of the reasons they put guilty was, you know, they had set up this defense that that tape you heard was just uh, make-believe. It was just a game going on, and it wasn't serious. But here we had all these memos saying, you know, new rules fostered, and that putting it in action. And so they were opening the door that all this stuff would come in. And um, so... We Sinon had offered ABC something like sixty thousand dollars to let them drop the lawsuit. I used to say the only guy who had a good lawsuit was Lee Harvey Oswald if he was alive. <laughs> but um, the um, uh, the trial goes on, and Sinon is delaying, 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 and running up the bill. And meanwhile, ABC gets sued by Lloyd's of London their insurance carrier, and Lloyd's claims that they only had a million dollars coverage, which included costs of defense, and the cost of defense has been up to four or five million. You owe us three or four million dollars. And they canceled the policy. Synodon was aware of this and filed a second lawsuit over something else just to say that when you beat us in this one, we're going to run up your fees again. And there was only, the judge made a finding of fact that Sinanar was was delaying the case to run up ABC's fees. And then uh, the ABC lawyers told me that they got in all the documents on cross-examination. The jury's rolling their eyes. They're not even going to put on a defense. And um, because you you can see the jury is just, you know, it's over. And, you know, some guy sitting on would say, oh, our, our reputation is important. And I'll cross, they'd hold up a newspaper, Rattler, death, you know, a trap. And I said, well, what did that do to your reputation? You know, so it was, um, um, it was a victory. And then lawyers for ABC from New York came out and um, went into chambers and agreed to pay sitting on a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars, keep it hush hush, and all lawsuits were dropped, and no one would ever know about it. It got public only because I broke the news because I was so so incensed. At the time, ABC was making a most uh, mini series on me and Sinon. The screenplay had been finished. Interesting. You know, it was just ready to go into production, and. Uh, I knew that that was over with, but it was so dehumanizing that for all the people they beat up for me, they'd pay a million a quarter. Well, the reason that they paid it was is that to settle the lawsuits between the insurance carrier and ABC and to pick a policy price for a future policy with greater coverage, they had to liquidate the Synanon problem because they didn't know what type of money figure to put on because of its ability to run up fees and costs in the future cases. 
And so a deal was made where Sinan would disappear. It would get a million and a quarter, and the lawyers would reduce their attorney fees that they were claiming on the case. And it was, and lawyers were not happy about it. You know, it, it, they had to be fired from the case, and a New York firm took it over. And the jury was so upset that they held a barbecue for uh, Bob and Chris and did it annually for five years. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, so now, what does this mean? Okay, since the time of, when did pay TV come in? Oh, it was 90s, late 80s? It seems right, yeah. It's hard to remember, but yeah. um, I told you now how the ABC thing, you know, uh, got canceled. Right. And then um, Showtime was going to make a motion picture in 1998. We finished that script. It was green-lighted for four years. It kept being delayed. They only filmed in Canada. And then they all, all went out of the movie-making business. But meanwhile, there's no documentary. There's documentary on every poll. People know about Manson. They know mm -hmm. about Jonestown. You know, we've watched Niche. There's been they don't know about Synodon. It's not public yeah, okay. at all. Now, here's the reason. Now, I told you this whole story. Okay. I only discovered this recently myself. I heard that A&E was going to do a six-part series on different cults in America, starting with Jonestown. I thought, what a great opportunity. And so I was going to make contact with A&E. And I called up their website, and there it was to the right. A&E, which is the History Channel at that time, you know, uh, it was uh, doing all the documentaries, you know, for probably the first 10 years of TV, they were probably the only station, the A&E stations, that was doing documentaries. You know, now we have CNN, now we have Netflix, you know, right. and, you know, HBO, you know, I don't know, Am Am Amazon, all these other people are getting into the game, yeah. Yeah, but at this time, it was only A&E for years. And there on the right in the website, it said that A&E is owned by the Hearst Corporation and ABC. Wow. That's it. That's so, it, yeah. So you've There's been stalled and stalled and pushed back. Now I, 20, I know that years. there was no way. In fact, probably contractually, they probably agreed. You know, even though Synodon doesn't exist to enforce it. But it's also, I don't think that ABC or the Hearst Corporation would exactly, you can't do the story without really telling what I just said. So you're going to open your own wounds. Who, where, when can we look forward to the documentary that you're featured in? Do you know when that'll be out or the name of it? I don't, I don't know. He did a, he did a, um, uh, film and he's gotten some some backing, you know, and uh, he's working on it. Okay, good. You know, well, uh, Paul Morantz, I'd like to just kind of wrap this up. Is there any final message or anything you would like to tell the listeners? Well, if, if, if between my two books, uh, Escape, it was written more for the public to educate by telling uh, and in quick, easy reading, the factual stories, you know, one chapter on Manson, the SLA, um, um, you know, Jonestown, Synodon, you know, 
of Scientology, you know, that without lecturing, without saying the, the commonalities are, is that you, by just being entertained by these stories, will see the similarities and you'll get it, you know, it's uh, without being sort of lectured to. And it's, it was written to be entertaining. Uh, my other book, I've actually gotten the greatest uh, responses from which is on people who say that it's ironic that the man who fought and brought them down has written the best book on Synanon, you know, from Miracles of Madness, but it's 670 pages, and it starts in 1913, and so it it makes you experience Synanon from its early glory days to the end, and you go through changes with it. It isn't for everybody because, you know, I think we're in what we call the Twitter generation. You know, people are used to, you know, things in a paragraph or two. Right. Um, so, but for someone who really wants to understand human behavior, you know, or to see Animal Farm or 1984 really in detail and effect and how it occurred, you know, I think it's um, it's a classic book. That, and, uh, and both of those books can be had at Amazon, is that correct? Yeah. And do you do you have a personal website where people can get copies? Uh, no, okay. I don't, but I do have a personal website that okay. gives... Uh, what is that? Uh, it's paulmorantz.com. And there are, you know, the lots of chapters on on Synanon and their early forms are on there and stories about all my other cases are on there. But, but they're long and it's actually better to get the books because it's, it's less reading. It's shorter, you know. Well, I can, really, yeah. I can testify that Escape My Lifelong War Against the Cult is an excellent book. I read the whole thing, so kudos to you for writing that. And your other book is The True Story of Charles Dieterich and Synanon by Paul Morantz, From Miracle to Madness. So those can be had on Amazon and www.paulmorantz.com. Paul, thank you so much. We talked for a long time. That We just made three hours, so you're my longest interview right. I've ever done. <laughs> well, the question the question is, is how many people will be asleep for three hours? I don't know. know. You know, I, my, my <laughs> listeners my listeners have long uh, long attention spans. They're not fully Twitter generationalized. They actually listen to these things. People put them on and drive or listen to them at work. So you never know. You can well, see. Well, it was interesting. Well, thank you very Paul, much. Thank you. God bless. Have a great day. Well, Hi, this is William Ramsey. The preceding hour was the third hour of a three-hour interview with attorney Paul Morantz. The entirety of the interview can be found at my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates. You can also find his books on Amazon and at his website, www.paulmorantz.com. P-A-U-L-M-O-R-A-N-T-Z.com. Thank you. Have a great day.